Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot. But check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on Magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. I'm extremely excited about my guest today. I have on Lionel Snell, who is often known as Ramsey Dukes, his pen name, one of the best writers on magic currently or at any time, I would say. He is one of the primary kind of movers of chaos magic, one of the original people to conceptualize chaos magic as a practice. And he's been doing great, great books ever since. He is criminally underappreciated. I recommend you read all of his stuff and also check out his YouTube. He's been doing amazing, amazing YouTubes. His channel is just called Ramsey Dukes. He is extremely funny. He is great at thought experiments. He is like the world's best thought experimenter, I would say. Here's a little bit about him from Wikipedia. Lionel Snell is a contemporary English magician, publisher, and author on magic and philosophy who was published under the pen names Ramsey Dukes and many others. Let's see. In 1977, he performed a well-known but notably laborious and rarely attempted ritual called the Abermelon Operation. He's recently put out, published his diaries from that time period. Since 1972, he has written and published several books noted for their impact on late 20th century magic and humor. Words Made Flesh from 1987 was written from a more philosophical point of view and notable for its original outline of the information model theory of magic that our universe could be a virtual reality, as later explored in The Matrix. It is an example of the author's ongoing studies in the relationship between magic and rationalism. So one of the things I really, really appreciate about Ramsey Duke's writing is he doesn't use any jargon. He doesn't use magic terminology. He puts everything in completely everyday common sense language so that literally anybody could understand it. And one of the most important and potent things about that is that he really dramatically shows you by doing this that magic is something that's right in front of your face right now. You don't need to stretch yourself to, you know, ridiculous lengths of taking psychedelics or dressing up funny or anything like that. You just need a slight perception shift at a slightly different way of looking at the world, maybe a different language set of conceptualizing your day-to-day experience and then voila the magical you the magical universe opens up to you 
This is one of the great things I've learned from his his books. I really recommend his Uncle Ramsey's Little Book of Demons, as well as his recent kind of kind of autobiographical book, My Years of Magical Thinking. But check out his YouTube. That's probably the best place to start. All right. So without any further ado, please welcome Ramsey Dukes. So first of all, it's a huge honor to have you on the podcast. You are one of my favorite writers on magic ever, and I think one of the best writers on magic ever. And uh, have, you've always been a great inspiration to me and, a, and, and, and just an incredibly entertaining writer. And the, the thing that I find most helpful and, and enlightening about your writing is that you, you take the very brave stance of never using jargon which I think you talk about in your videos and, and yes, that's, yeah. it's, it's interestingly enough. And, and I, I, one of the reasons that that is so, I mean, it's, it's, it's so inspiring for me just because it, to force yourself to write in that way or to communicate in that way so that anyone can, I think a, it does make it so that anyone can understand it, but also B, it forces you to be clear about what you're actually doing instead of diluting your, you, I, I'm not saying you, but somebody writing in that way, instead of using jargon. That's but, interesting. Yes. Yeah. I, I'd sort of forgotten that aspect. The thing is that, um, uh, for many years, I've been earning my money as a, a technical, uh, writer, um, you know, broad coverage, um, PRs, articles, video scripts, all sorts of things. And of course, they really want you to do use jargon until you're practically puking from it. You know? so, so I got one instinct, I don't like jargon. The other thing is in the occult, there are so many different schools and traditions, things like that, that on the whole, you're committing yourself or being seen as committing yourself to a certain thing if you use that jargon. So yeah, I'm trying, I, I'm conscious of not wanting to do that. That makes sense. I, that's interesting. You bring up technical writing. I definitely, one thing I realized working in the corporate world and also in the tech world and in the finance world, just noticing them as well as medical professions, I realized at a certain point that jargon is a way of maintaining job security and convincing people that, that you know things that they don't. And interestingly, so, so that uh, you have to basically maintain your job as the expert in the office at IT or, or, mm. you know, being a doctor or, or taking people's money to invest. And then when really usually these things aren't that complicated. So interestingly, applying that to magic, when you write about it, it just totally makes sense as something that everyone is already doing. The classic thing that I always think about is the bit you wrote about, about how to see auras or Whereas uh, maybe if you maybe maybe if you can riff off that because that's something that I think people would love to hear about. Mm. Well, it's um yeah that was probably in uh, how to see fairies in that book. The thing is that um uh, I really began that book saying you know if you bought this book you would like to see fairies or be clairvoyant whatever. How do you know you're not? And I said that um. People have experiences, weird experiences, and they explain them away because of the sort of rationalist culture we're brought up in. So, you know, out of the corner of your eye, you see a sort of strange fluttering in the undergrowth or something. Um, and rather than thinking, oh, I wonder if that's a fairy, you stare hard and it's not there. So um, things like auras, 
if you gaze at someone and hold your gaze, you do begin a sort of a quivering of the edges, you know. Um, but what we're taught to do is to blink and that goes away. You've cleared it, you've normalized it. And I said that if actually, if you accept what you're seeing, um, if you accept these sort of messages that are coming through intuitively, uh, rather than instinctively banishing them, which is what we're trained to do, you know, oh, nonsense. Uh, one, one example I've been doing more recently is, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the word they use for it, you know, when you, you see things which are not actually there, there's some sort of parallelia or something. Do you know the word I mean? I don't, no. Oh, right. Uh, let me think. Um, Pete Carroll wrote some good stuff about it. Uh, people see faces in clouds. Um, and you're told, of course, there aren't any faces in clouds. It's just your mind is imagining it. Um, actually, I thought, I want to see faces in clouds. So I started looking at clouds for faces. And I learned how to do it. And it was wonderful because practicing that, I began to see faces everywhere in undergrowth, in the leaves and things like that. And um, some people say, well, that's me going balmy. You know, <laughs> I'm now becoming deluded. No, it was like the world around me coming to life, all these wonderful faces, you know. It's, so it became a new conversation with nature and, and with life. And so that's rather my an angle I like to take, um, exploring, finding new ways of looking at the world, new, new wonderment. And um, so I think, you know, that, that's the sort of thing I was referring to in that book, uh, how to open up your senses to more experiences rather than saying, oh, that must be imagination, turn it off. You know? I love that because it makes it so direct and practical. And I think when people first get into magic, they get this idea that they have to do, there's some extremity they have to push themselves to, whether it's doing enough psychedelics or there's some secret that they have to learn from a certain group of people and they really have to work at it. When really I've, what you just said was when I first started, it, it was so helpful for me and it confirmed so much that I'd already been thinking, which is just, it's that it's really a way of I, I think of magic as a language for describing things that are already there. And then when you do stop yourself from when you, when you stop yourself from stopping engaging with those things, then suddenly it just becomes completely common sense and in, in right in front of you. I, th I sometimes draw a comparison with, um, you know, the way people, some people approach magic is the way people approach science. Now as a, as a kid, you get these wonderful books, you know, the wonders of science, you know, um, uh, rockets into space, um, you know, nuclear power and all these things like that. And if you say, right, okay, wow, I want to be a scientist. And you think that you're immediately going to be making, um, splitting the atom, you're going to be flying to Mars, this, that, and the other. Because actually, if you start on your science lessons, you're doing things like for chemistry, you're learning lists and lists of valences and sort of, um, you know, for, for physics, you're weighing little things and them on each other and measuring the temperature. And so it actually starts from very small things. And I feel the same about magic. Some people think they're immediately... They want to get to the big stuff, you know, visions of eternity and so on and so forth. 
Now, that to me is a bit like getting into an airplane and flying to another country. Fascinating. You know, you have a great experience. When you come back home, it all seems very far away. You know, you have your amazing trip and then you're back in your everyday life and you're going to work the next day and you've got your washing up to do and all that sort of thing. And it's like a sort of drops you back and it's almost the other stuff is like a dream. Whereas I'm often saying, take a fresh look at just what, look at it from a different angle. And it's like you're opening a door from your everyday reality into something else. Now, if you go through that door, you can keep going and discover the really weird stuff. But the important thing for me is really you've discovered that in this everyday reality, which can seem very humdrum, there are doors which open up to otherness and weirdness. And that is really, I think, probably the gift I'm giving people. Um, you know, I'm not saying there isn't all this fantastic stuff far away and all that, um, by all means, but it's worth knowing that it begins, the journey begins with just uh, stepping out, which is so mundane. I, I love that. That makes it, I love that phrase also. You said uh, doorway to other, to a door, a doorway to otherness. Is that what you said? Or did I just get it wrong? Yeah, so that was it. Yes. I love that. Let me ask you this. I mean, I'll just go for the big question, which at this point, after thinking about this and writing about this, and I'm sure you've, you know, and having done many, many books about magic, I'm sure you've gone, your mind has changed quite a bit about what exactly magic is. And I'm sure that's been an interesting process. Mm. What would you, I'll just say this, how would you define magic now? What is magic to you now in your in your day-to-day -day life, in your understanding of it? And is that different from what you thought it was when you started out? Um, now, the trouble with that question for me is I'm not a person who really goes in for definitions. I go <laughs> in for exploring to see what I find. And I could give an analogy of that, that um, some people, when they go into nature, and this is a more academic approach, they know what they're looking for. We're going to go to find the lesser spotted wood. They look for the lesser spotted woodpecker and they see something and say, ah, oh, that's it. And the person says, no, no, it hasn't got white under, red under its tail. So it's not the lesser spotted woodpecker. Oh, I see. Okay. And some people approach magic like that. You know, what exactly is it? Now, I like to wander into nature just to see what I find, <laughs> you know, to revel in the marvel of it. And so, um, uh, I don't really like strictly defining magic. Um, but uh, having said that, yeah, what I think is instead is there are many ways of looking at magic. And I'll present one way, which is I've been thinking about recently. And that is if you think of magic as the sort of the territory that lies between science and art, then... Um, uh, you could say there's the sort of uh, the scientific edge of it, and there's the artistic side of it. Now, the scientific thing, uh, I came up with this when I was chatting recently with Pete Carroll, because he, I say, approached it from the science end. And science end is wanting, uh, is the desire for power to make changes, how we can learn in order to do that. 
And the artistic end is more about experience, wanting to see things in a new way, have, have more experience. And so um, I think that people mostly come into magic because they want to make changes in conformity with will. Um, but I remember a number of times I was talking to groups of pagans and I said, you know, over the years, um, I probably do less, I do less magic, but I live more magic. And I often notice quite a few heads nodding in the audience. And I think that um, uh, many people follow that path. They begin by wanting to make changes, make things happen and all that. And they discover that actually magic becomes a way of life where they're more interested in enjoying what happens from the magical perspective. They find it, it gives them a richer life experience. And I think that's quite true for me, that I do less magic, power magic to make things happen. And I'm more um, enjoying the richness of experience that living magically is showing me. So in saying that, I haven't sort of defined magic, but maybe I've shown an angle of magic, which is fresh. You know, other people might not see it that way. I, yes, that's, I really love that. Maybe can I ask you, what are the angles of magic that you're most interested in exploring? Or what are the corners of nature that are most, are most interesting to you right now? Ah, uh, let me think. I, I, I'm interested in the astrological models um, and trying to relate, uh, say, major astro astrological events to what's going on in the world. And it isn't always an easy connection, but there's one I've been very much aware of uh, for about the last, I'm not terribly good at dates, but maybe the last 10 to five years. And that is um, uh, the motion of, of Pluto through Capricorn. I don't know if you've, if you've looked into that at all or heard people well, talking about it. The only thing I know about Pluto is it, it at times foments revolution, anarchy, and chaos, which was, of course, very interesting to me. But that's about all. <laughs> yeah. And it, it sort of shakes the foundations. Now, the very interesting thing that Liz Green wrote, and this was back in the early 80s, so it's very perceptive. She said that um, she talked about when Pluto was going to move um, into Capricorn which is where it is now and has been for quite a while. And she said, um, Capricorn, people associate it with sort of the structure of society, you know, governments, um, uh, bureaucracy, and all that. And so that's, that's going to get a shake-up um, in that time. But she said also she thinks Capricorn is more about society's fundamental sense of what is real, what is the foundation, you know, the, the solid Saturnian stuff. And she said that um, could be shaken up by Pluto and Capricorn. And I find that very interesting because, of course, um, I see, I can see signs of that uh, sense of what is real, what is solid being shaken over the last few years. 
in several different ways. In politics, it's, you know, the post-truth thing and the old certainties are shaking. Um, in terms of materialism, uh, the, the sciences, I mean, they've been saying this for a long time, but I think it's getting through to the public that the old rock-solid world of solid objects and actions and repeatable actions isn't quite as solid as we've been led to believe. And then an example I'm vaguely aware of is in academia. Now, academia was always very anti-occult, anti-magic. You know, it was, um, well, back in the 50s, it just wasn't mentioned. And then you got um, the, I think in the 70s, when people, you could write about it in academia as a pathology, you know, um, uh, like the, uh, the fly you know why is it that people sort of um go crazy and and um flight from reason but since uh the beginning of this century and more recently people you can write academically about magic well as you have in your john d book you know as you don't necessarily have to believe it or go along with it but you have to admit it's an important part of human culture it's influential you know so that's quite a shift. And um, I think people uh, in academia who are studying magic are still pretty wary of, you know, um, they don't want to go native. You know, they, they've got to keep their distance <laughs> from that. But it's okay to talk about it as an important cultural factor. And that, that's, that's a major shift. Um, and I think it might shift further, you know, that actually they might actually start admitting that magic can work. And, um, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, it's not just a delusion. I, I, I definitely agree with that. And it's also just, and you can't argue that magic has not been a part of human history deeply and profoundly across cultures for since the beginning of, of history. Uh, and I have noticed that shift in academia as well. And even when I started out with magic, it was not that way and it shifted. And, and to be very to be a little bit reductive about that, I have the suspicion that one of the reasons that that is, is because a lot of current academics grew up reading Harry Potter <laughs> and, and wanting that experience. And it like, like I had, they had their view of what academia could be shaped by those books and the idea of kind of being in a, a cloistered educational environment and, and researching magic was so potent for so many people that I think it it only makes sense that a, a certain crop of academics would have kind of had that that script you know setting their model of what they were doing in 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 the academy but That's great yes <laughs> I, 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 there was a sort of turning point example which was interesting to me it was just about around 2000 um, Nicholas Goodrick Clark um, got a position in Exeter University and of course, they wouldn't call it magic or, or the occult. It was like, um, I think it was uh, the Western esoteric tradition or something like that, or you know, esotericism probably was the word. And this was very exciting. You know, here was a, a serious university actually having a course and a department uh, look at this. And I went to visit him and, um, and stay with him one weekend. And I said, wow, you know, that's amazing. Academia is actually sort of, and he said, well, yes and no, because, um, yeah, he is now a department in the university, but he's still seen as a bit of a freak show 
you know, sort of giggle, giggle, you know, we've actually got a department of esotericism. Oh, oh blimey, you know. Um, so uh, what looked like an amazing breakthrough was actually a sort of a leak. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just you getting know, the seeds were sown. <laughs> do you know Tobias Churton? Have you met him at all? Oh, yes. Well, I have. Uh, I know him indirectly through Christopher McIntosh, good friends. And um, yes, he, he's... He's definitely um, one of those people, a student of, um, uh, uh, you know, student of esotericism, which is um, increasingly accepted. Yes, what were you going to say about him? Sorry, I, I think I could be wrong. I think he was working as I think he was part of that program. And the last I asked him, I believe I asked him about it a few years ago, and he said that either it would had shut down or had been a lot of funding had been pulled from it. And I don't know the exact details, but. But he seemed he seemed a bit crestfallen about it. Yeah. Well, Nicholas died um, not long after I visited him. So you know, not soon after soon after two thousand, and Christopher McIntosh had been one of the lecturers there, um, and so I, I knew that it had it had passed on. But there are, I think, quite a few universities through Europe um, that are still have their courses and there are quite serious academic um conferences on the subject there was one held in europe um i think in germany a year or two back and Raphael prink was actually discussing my views on magic um at an academic conference i huh. thought Ooh, whippy you know <laughs> love it <laughs> and um so yeah and actually next year no no this year in September, I've been invited to a conference um, in the University of Northampton. Uh, one called, is it called Trans Trans States? I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I haven't. And, well, it, it looks fascinating to me because they looked at it. Uh, they based the theme on a different tarot card. I think last year they said it was the the tower, and the first year it was the, the magician. No, we're saying, no, this year, um, it's the magician. And so they're looking at the whole trickster aspect of magic, uh -huh. you know, so including <laughs> stage magic, conjuring and all that. And they've asked me to come and be a keynote speaker, which oh, lovely. I, I've never done that before, but that is absolutely amazing to me to be a keynote speaker in a, a sort of uh, a fairly academic conference. They picked the right person. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. And, and you know, there's outside of the opening of interest in ac academia, there's also just the internet and, and just going from the time of zines and underground publishing and kind of counterculture newspapers and magazines to the internet. It's just undeniable now that information has opened up that everybody wants to know about magic and they have access to it. And I think one of the really surprisingly profound things that's happened is I think magic is a little bit like pornography in the sense that now once people can consume it privately without having to go to a shop to buy it, suddenly they're a lot less reticent to do so. <laughs> and, and that's something that I've noticed just in, in, you know, teaching online and things like that. I get people taking the courses that never would have been, I, you would never have expected to show up to like a, a pagan meetup or a chaos magic meetup or something like that. And it's, it's been interesting to me to see that it's really 
uh, endemic across society and, and class lines and, and country lines and language lines. And that's been really, really encouraging to me. I know you did a... Yeah, uh, well, uh, I was going to say there's actually a lot I'd like to ask you about that because you're okay. really in the thick of what's happening. I'm stuck out at the very tip of Africa, you know, next stop, the Antarctica. <laughs> well, I'd love, I, I, I never leave, I never leave the house. So, uh, I'm, I feel kind of in the same boat, but you know, I'm just online all day. So. <laughs> right, yeah. But you're online. Yes. That's it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there was one, one thing was a few years ago, about five years ago or so, some, uh, sort of trend seeking agency, trend spotting agency, announced proudly, and it was in several newspapers, uh, the trend of the year is chaos magic. Yes, I did see that. Yeah, wildly excited. I posted it in Facebook. And then did anything happen? I mean, I, I, I don't, well, what was that? That was, I remember trying to remember that group was called K, not K-pop, K-cluster. It was something, it was K-something. I have, I would say that I don't know if anything directly came out of that other than I think that the idea and my, I'm biased because I see reality from my angle. So this is just what I'm looking for all day long. But I think that even since, you know, even from, you know, the days that I was involved in, you know, of course, chaos magic groups and things like that in the late nineties and early two thousands, even from then, it has just gone from being still a very, very, very fringe idea to, I would say, being completely accepted by the art world, I think 100%. And I always go back to your model on that. And I think that the art world loves magic and the idea of magic, if not the practice of it. And I think that the reason that they like it is a, it's just a, it's just a good place to mine material. There's so much, uh, you know, artistic and cultural material. It's kind of like a, just another place to plunder for, you know, edgy and, and interesting artistic material. And I think they love it because I, m I mean, whether it's the art gallery world, particularly in New York, um, or, you know, kind of, uh, the, the, the crossover between art publishing and academic publishing or musicians, music videos. I've, I mean, I lived in, um, I lived in London for a while too, but I, I lived in New York and LA for 20 years combined. And so I was able to see this happening a lot. And I think that you, so you can see it in culture, whether it's the art world or music videos or um, uh, movies and things like that. And I, my experience is just that artistic people just get this stuff immediately, but that what they really like is the glamor of it. And you'll be extremely hard pressed if, and it may even be impossible in most cases, even in these cultural milieus to find people who are for instance, working through a series, you know, actually practicing or, you know, have, heaven forbid, working through something like yeah. um, Liber MMM or, or, or Crowley or something like that. Although they are there, they love the image of it. So, and in a way that kind of, you know, the, the, it's kind of like the letter killeth type situation where they want the cast off the simulacra of it because they can sell it and be associated with the glamour themselves, but they're not necessarily willing to go full into the, 
the actual practice. And that kind of drives me nuts because my point is like, you know, it's not the signifier, it's the signified, like all the symbols of magic are just the residue that are the leftover. The point is actually learning the practice. So yeah, that's my take on it's it. Very, that's very interesting to me, actually, because it slightly reflects what I was saying at the beginning about, you know, the artistic end of magic. Um, and I would say they are enjoying experiencing magic um, more than actually doing it. It's, 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 it's another example of that, I think. From the artistic end, you realize that there's a whole other world of experience if you open yourself up to magic. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a different way of looking at the world is one of the things, you know, you, um, you look at something you want to portray and you're looking for something which goes beyond words and beyond symbols and you're wanting to express it, which in a way is you're mining the magic of it um, in finding that expression. And once you get into that frame of mind, you'll have your own way of getting it, whether it's meditating or contemplating or um, like Austin Spare, you know, exhausting yourself. Um, you have your own personal way of getting into that space. Uh, and it may not be by putting on a robe and lighting incense and doing all that sort of thing. Um, but you might use some of those elements all the same, you know. Uh, what is it that, a, how does an artist prepare him or herself to, um, for inspiration? And they may do things which don't belong to any tradition, but actually they are their own magical practices. Um, the way they get into that other frame of mind. Yeah. That's always been the thing that interests me, which is what is the actual, what are the actual techniques? What, are, how do you actually do it so that you can have your own experience? But I think the, I think that a lot of the, you won't as necessarily find that in the art or cultural worlds as much as you'll find like people doing music videos with people in robes putting off a witchy aesthetic or something like that which for me is just not particularly interesting i feel like the kind of maybe the a good analogy i could find is that it's kind of similar to when you have uh, in terms of the art world's relationship with magic and wanting to kind of commodify it or or latch onto it, which I suppose is good in a is good because it brings it out into the culture. But at the same time, it's kind of like when you have a, let's say, like a performer on stage that's in a kind of, you know, if we can say a shamanic type performer, or you have someone like Ian Curtis or or like Iggy Pop is cutting himself with a bottle on stage, and he's having this intense you know, experience of performing and going into these ritual frenzy states and things like that. And then you have all these people kind of, you know, standing around wearing black with their arms folded saying like, oh, you know, isn't this interesting, right? It's kind of like that same type of dynamic. Mm. Gosh, that's, that triggers several thoughts in me. One is um, uh, remembering when I was at Cambridge, when I first went there, there was a sort of Dadaist revival. And this would be about 1960, early 60s, you know, the happening, you, you know, of happenings, which oh, was yeah, yeah, yeah. music playing backwards, weird things, people in robes, people naked, whatever, um, you know, doing crazy things. And um, so they decided they would hold one of those in the uh, 
painfully sophisticated milieu of Cambridge undergraduates who've just come up, you know. <laughs> and um, so really, there was this room in this pub with people standing watching while other people sort of walked <laughs> around with, I don't know, gas ovens on their heads or <laughs> doing yes. crazy things. <laughs> and they were sort of, the audience was saying, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think Max Ernst did that in in 1933, <laughs> didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, complete sort of not drawn into it. You know, they were they were outside watchers, and so seeing that, um, knowing the links between surrealism, Dadaism, and magic, I decided that I wanted to uh, hold a ritual and try to get over that that boundary between the watchers and the performers and so and i based it very much on crowley's thing about what did he call it the um dramatic ritual the rites of aloysius or something like that uh, first thing i did is i said to people who you know, I, I put an advertisement in the university magazine and got people together and i said there's no uh there's no watchers in this. You're all going to be made anonymous. You'll turn your robes, you know, your uni university gowns on back to front. I'll make sort of hooded masks that go over your head so you're all totally anonymous. So you're not thinking, oh, heck, I've got to do something, you know, because I've been watched. Um, and I'll just give you the instructions of what you've got to do. And um, so... Uh, yeah, I, I did a ritual which began on those lines. And so they were all involved in it and they were all separate from each other. And uh, at the end, when I met people afterwards, they said that was incredibly powerful because um, I had explained that I was sort of exploring the edges between art and, and magic and I'm using magical methods the dramatic ritual. One of the things of dramatic ritual is that you rehearsed it very carefully up to the climax. And the one thing you don't rehearse, according to Crowley, is the climax. Only the main character knows the climax and rehearses it. So everyone's doing these actions, not knowing quite what's coming. And so when the climax happens, they're unexpected. You know, they're not, ex they're not prepared for it. And it's something surprising. And that is a lot of the invocatory aspect of the magic. Um, and then you end up with an impromptu based on what arises. Um, now, the people afterwards said, you know, it was really weird because, and it's my nature, you didn't cast a great mystery and sort of, you know, meet me in the um, graveyard at midnight and blah 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 and i am a great magician and i've got a history going back thousands of years and blah 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 and that stuff um you spoke very rationally that what you were doing you explained what you were doing an artistic experiment bringing in magical elements and they said that was fine but once we were in the semi-dark with these hoods, hoods on and everything we weren't talking to each other we all began to think, what's really behind this? You know, is this some weird cult that we've got into? <laughs> um, 
Is he channeling some weird stuff from another dimension or what? And they couldn't ask anyone, you know, say, what are you thinking? And they said it, that was incredibly powerful. They went into the unknown. And, um, yeah, I mean, it blew some people's minds. Um, and um, <laughs> as far as I was concerned, the whole thing was a disaster. I went home sobbing that evening. Oh, but wow. actually, it was an incredibly powerful experience for all of us. Um, that, uh, uh, and it was... Um, I really had invoked the trickster because there was I being as, as open and as honest and not fooling anyone. <laughs> but that very fact meant I was the ultimate fooler in the, in the end. Um, yeah. No, so that was, it was what you said that sort of triggered that to me. The, um, yeah. So an artist, if, if you, um, yeah, if you sort of bring that element into an artistic production, you may be doing much more than you think. And the, the, I, the one that occurred to me as you were speaking was, you know, the movie Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, of course. Yeah. Now, there's a scene in that when, you know, the person comes into this sort of cult situation uh, in disguise he finds himself in this thing and all that they do is they have people dressed in sort of robes with hoods and doing these sort of rather sinister um, movements going thump, thump, thump with the staff. And that scene I found incredibly eerie and powerful, particularly when you think this person is in that, not knowing what it's all about. Um, and really all he's done is taken the very simplest, most cliched ideas of a magic ritual, robes, incense, flames, darkness, and presenting it in the middle of this movie uh, produces a very powerful and sort of um, haunting feeling. Well, it did for me, even though I, even though, you know, I have a lot of experience with magic. Um, Still, and I think sort of uh, artists can, uh, it's what they invoke in the audience if they decide to go down the route of, you know, magic pentacles and symbols and goats' heads and all that. <laughs> um, it, can, it can invoke a lot more in the audience. <laughs> yes. They think they're doing, yeah. Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut, it's funny because it, it it's, you know, it's always struck me as, well, you know, this is what chaos magicians would do if they had a budget. <laughs> they just don't have the budget for this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, were you ever able to to speak with Genesis? I think I, you mentioned talking with her in your videos about the process. Did you have a, a communication there? Yeah. Uh, I was I was working with quite a few of the um, uh, Topi people. But as far as I, I only remember one, you know, having dinner with him on one occasion. Um, so I don't really know him very well. This was, this was in the, in the eighties when, when Jen was still in Brighton. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. was it. And um, uh, let me think, I actually met him in the West country. Um, uh, a friend of mine was a Topi person that, you know, and said, Oh, you know, you must meet Jen. And um uh, come to supper together 
And that was when I think we talked about the process. And he said how he was very fascinated by it. And I, I, I think as I did in that video, I said, you know, that um, I'm not really a joiner and I was living in the deep country. So it was very much was a, a rich kids in London thing. But I, I found it artistically fascinating, their magazines. And when I went to London, I would I'd buy every one I could. So I had an almost complete collection of the really good magazines they were doing when they were in England. I didn't think I didn't have the very first one, but, you know, I had all the later ones. And um, he said he would love to see those. And I said, you know, I'll give you them. Um, and in return, what he did is he gave me photocopies of those plus all the stuff that he had, because he had some of the later things and some of their essays and articles, and things like that, which I didn't find so, <laughs> you know, quite interesting. But, you know, really, to me, the best thing was those, um, those magazines and the images and the way that they suggested powerful ideas through simple imagery. Um, that was what really caught me about the process. He sort of, um, he, he was very, I, I gathered he used some of their thinking and their ideas to build a movement, but he was very key. He tried very hard to avoid that um, hierarchical thing, which would have put him at the top. He was trying to keep it democratic, if you like, or, you know, um, horizontal, uh, because he, he could see how quickly the power structure, it, it's, it's, like, it's almost like you've planted a seedbed where <laughs> the power structure is bound to grow in there. And you've got to keep trimming it to keep it, to keep it you know, yeah. stop that happening. Yeah, as, as, you, as you may know, I was very, you know, I was very close with Jen for a long time and studied with her and lived with her for a while in, in New York for, I mean, almost seven, seven, eight years. But the... And the reason I, I bring Jen up is because she would always talk about the, a lot of the stuff that you, you've just mentioned, just of, you know, theater, you know, experimental theater actions in universities in England in the sixties or the process or that, you know, that, that process, if you will, of breaking down the wall between the audience and the performer. And that was really her stock and trade. Mm. And it's, it, I have to say, it makes me, it just makes me, it makes me happy, happy listening to your videos because I spent so much time with Jen listening to her talk about the sixties and I haven't just, I haven't like just had that in my life until I started watching some of your videos talking about it. So it was, it was, it was a good feeling for me. Yeah. Well, one, one, uh, cooperation, um, in London, sometime in i think about the mid 80s they decided to do the rites of eleusis you know that crowley mm. had done this set of rituals which were performed in london uh for the planets um so you know there'll be one on one day they'd do mercury another on jupiter another on the sun and there were these rites of eleusis which um uh were written up and published now they decided to, to run that sequence of, of rituals in london but they also decided that because um, it's, it's 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 quite an obligation, <laughs> quite complicated, and they decided to give different organize different groups 
to do each ritual. So each ritual would be done by a different group and they would be given freedom to do it the way they wanted to. And I was in the group that did Jupiter and I can't remember very much about it, but, you know, we sort of, um, we followed more or less the Jupiter ritual and, uh, yeah, I can't remember much about it. We did actually, but I was fascinated because Topi did the Mercury ritual and they did something which now would be pretty insignificant, but it was, to me, it was mind blowing at the time because of the tech this was the leading edge of technology at the time they did their performance on the stage and they were continuously taking photographs and putting them into a fax machine and sending those images out around the world <laughs> now of course with the internet you know that's nothing now but it was there was a ritual being held in london and the imagery of it was going out around the world to different people. And that for Mercury was a sensational thing for me, you know, a, a sort of so mercurial and so modern and so absolutely immediate and now. So I love that sort of experimentation. Um, and I, you know, I'll never forget that. Although, as I say, in a way they were you know years ahead of their time and now you would just send send the thing out on the internet all around the world but um uh it was a breakthrough for me the thought of using uh the latest mercurial communications to make to take the ritual out of space and time and send it around the world mm. That's great. I remember Phil Hine told me at one point a really funny story from that time period of being at, I think in Oxford or somewhere like that, a super, super serious Thelemic symposium where everyone's kind of giving their their talks on, on you know, Typhonian sex magic and this type of thing and being very, very, uh, you know, stuffy about it and then Topi showed up and just put on a video of sex magic actions they'd done and everyone descended into a fit of tittering uh you know it's kind of schoolboy laughter oh yes i think i think um it it was my friend louise hodgson was was Ah. um very involved with that yes she was my contact my main contact with Topi. the other was um uh um, oh, gee, what's he called himself? The guy who p- published the first edition of what I of Blast Your Way to Megabucks um, was another Topi person. And then, of course, um, uh, Carl Abrahamson, because I was thinking of him when you were talking about, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, sort of symbiosis between the world of art and the world of magic, because he's very much on that occulture um, part of the spectrum, isn't he? Yes. Carl Abrahamson, the yes, generous wolf. Definitely. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Well, maybe let's, let's move forward a bit. I think that one of the things I really, really, really wanted to talk to you about, particularly because you've been doing recent videos on it. Uh, I just watched the one you put out yesterday about, you know, conspiracy thinking and populism is that once you, in our current time period, once you get out of a culture, right? And you just look at the world as it is now. It is, we, we do seem to have been thrown into this kind of mass magical thinking or possibly, you know, mass hysteria, mass delusion, where I think you were saying earlier in the interview, people feel that the firmament, you know, hasn't been able to stand and that there, nobody quite knows what's, 
what's real anymore and that consequently people are seem to me to have grouped up into into power groups so it's just become a it's become a question of who can shout loudest they get to decide what reality is and i think that we never saw that so clearly as during the pandemic where suddenly everyone is kind of stuck at home in this world of delusions and ghosts in their own head and just on the internet and whatever you want to believe about what's happening you can find on the internet and that suddenly there's no truth i found this you know obviously very personally distressing and and for all the obvious reasons but as a magician the idea of being at home kind of in a semi hallucinatory state was certainly not new to me <laughs> at all right but i really want to i'm really really curious of just your your perceptions magical or otherwise about the state that we've been thrown into now during covid and now semi post covid because i think that people's perceptions and their way of approaching the world and their assumptions about the world have changed so radically in ways that we probably don't even realize yet and and they will be for a long time so i really really just wanted to ask you about your your thoughts about about what has happened and where we are yeah um now an image came to my mind as you were saying that um and um I mean, sometimes I'm speaking through ignorance because I'm, I'm, I'm not in the thick of things, but I am an intuitive and I sort of pick up, just thinking of, of what you were saying, I had the image of, um, you know, these flood disasters like um, uh, a tsunami and, uh, you know, a village, a town washed away and people struggling through the debris. Now, I think that... Um, our culture over certainly the last hundred years is very much uh, the materialist reductionist, um, the search not for truth in the big sense, it's less than that, it's, it's which is true, which is false. It's a simple binary sort of view of the world. So um, the, I mean, take this, um, the war with U Ukraine, everyone is sort of saying, yeah, but what's, what's the actual truth? There's the Russian version and there's the US or Western version. And uh, tendency is to believe the side you're on, you know, so um, I am more drawn to the Western version uh, than I am to the Russian version. But I have to remind myself that um, I don't actually know. I read The Economist articles which are very good, they're very well explained, and you know, they make a lot of sense. But The Economist is very much a Western mouthpiece. How much can I trust it? And um, I realize I have to watch out for confirmation bias. The articles I love reading are about the incompetence and failure of the Russian army. And I realize I, I enjoy those articles because it fits my belief that a dictatorship based on power and um, censorship uh, eventually breaks down because it loses touch with reality. So you see, I love those articles, but I have to remind myself that it's, that's why I love those articles, because it confirms my beliefs. And therefore, I must always have that pinch of salt. 
So um, here are people who are aware that truth is very malleable. Even videos of dead people in streets could be taken from a different war. They could be faked. Uh, they could be photoshopped. Um, and, but they've been brought up to believe that there is a truth that of any story, there must be one thing which is the true story, and all the rest are the illusions we've been spun for us. Now, my analogy with the uh, floodwater post tsunami is that all these people are floundering in the water, trying to find things to grab onto. You know, uh, um, a piece of furniture floats past, wooden furniture, they grab it, you know, to save themselves. Everyone's trying to grab onto some bit of truth, some fragment of truth, which they can trust to save their lives. It's that hungry. And the magic part of me says, why don't they just learn to swim? <laughs> yes. You know, magic is about plunging yourself into this and yourself finding how to float in weirdness and to, um, uh, and, you know, yeah. Now, it certainly helps, particularly in the beginning, to have little bits of things to hold on to, you know, a bit of psychology, a bit of um, uh, quantum theory for some people. Um, uh, that's helpful. But actually, the real magic is when you learn to swim and let go of needing those little bits of certainty and really let yourself go with the flow of it. Um, yeah. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So um, I think that that sort of addresses your question. It doesn't answer it. None of my things actually answer, but I think that addresses your question, doesn't it? It's like people are reaching for those floating objects to try to find something that'll save them uh, rather than um, they haven't yet really learned to go with the flow. Yeah, I agree. I I felt this way for a long time, and in, in the sense that these are, you know, that that and I I the learning to learning to swim or learning to surf metaphor is is really is really ideal. I think that particularly chaos magicians just learned to surf, you learned to swim a long, long time ago, and so none of this is that disconcerting. But because of that reason, I think I really underestimate there's just the profound existential anxiety and stress that people have been feeling as to be frank what chaos magicians always wanted to happen has happened <laughs> you know it's like it's like okay here you go here's your you know the eschaton is long since uh, emanatized uh, and now we do live in the post-truth world and it's it's kind of unpleasant but is certainly nothing new if you've already been i wouldn't even necessarily say a, a a magical thinker but a more chaos magical thinker just for the reason that you say which is that so many people just find you know they get their ascended master or crowley or quantum physics or something that they cling on to as as this is why magic works and this is why it's true instead of just instead of just lightening up a little bit but mm. yeah i think yeah. that um you know it's very natural to grab for a floating table to hold on to. And I wouldn't say it's wrong. You know, 
many people's lives are saved by finding something they can hold on to, whether it's a conventional religion or a cult or something, um, to get them over that. But um, it's the thought that you have to do that, and without it, you're going to die, um, which is uh, misleading. And I, in one of my videos, I think it was the one which was living, surviving in a post-truth world. I drew the strongest analogy with magical thinking when I said that um, uh, what you should be asking when a politician makes a statement or like that, you know, this was particularly the days when Trump was very much in the ascendant. Uh, people rush to try to find out with what he's saying is true or not. And there's this huge debate, you know, between the people who say, oh, no, if you look at the figures, Trump's talking absolute rubbish. Um, and other people saying, but can you trust those figures? You know, um, I feel that what he's saying is true in my area, blah, blah, blah. And so a huge energy and argument going into whether he's saying is true or not. And I say, um, save a bit of that energy and instead ask, why is he saying it? Yes. Yes. Why is the politician saying that? I love that. Yeah. By the way, did you ever look into Trump's interest in magic? Not really. I I, I think I listened to, I think, was it uh, one of your... A Gary Lachman. It, yeah, that was a Gary Lachman. And um, I think also Michael Hughes. Oh, yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, I can't remember what was in that, but... Yeah, so I sort of, you know, as I say, from the distance, I got a taste of it, but I, um, I don't really know. Uh, I would have to ask you about that. It's pretty. I, it's. I'm. I'm amazed people didn't pick up on it more in the sense that, uh, I mean, it's in a pretty straightforward way. It's. It's that you know he grew up interested in positive thinking and the the power of affirmations and that type of thing, and he 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 wrote when he was in his you know earlier period, he was writing all these kind of. Um, you know, popular financial books with Robert Kiyosaki and, and things like this and Trump University. And I just remember going to the, just going to the public library and, and opening up a bunch of Trump's old books. And just the minute I, the page I opened, the first page I opened them up to, he's talking about Kabbalah and Carl Jung. And I was just like, what is, what is going on? <laughs> and apparently he was just full, full on into the, you know, or is, you know, just full on to it and just really embodies this, this really kind of in in the true sense like magical um stance of it's true because i say it's true you know, of just just putting your will out into the world without any you know because without a because you know without any any need to prove it and that's just such a it's just such an advantage over other people who like you say just then get caught up in the oh well what did the stats say you know it's like well he, he didn't look at any of those he's just saying things as they come to him yes that's it yeah that's it gosh i you know i i i'm i'm stunned to hear that part of me is saying <laughs> oh bring it on let's have trump back <laughs> Oh my God! How awful! You know what am I responsible for? This, <laughs> gosh. That's, oh, well. um, but just uh, in that uh, piece about you know surviving the poisonous world, I said, start practicing it on adverts because you see adverts are deliberate attempts to. And the thing is, it's easier because you know that they're just trying to influence you, and they're not necessarily saying the truth. And so you get something like um, Coca Cola saying it's the real thing. <laughs> do you go to laboratories to try to test coca-cola see how real it is 
it's just a, it's a truism, isn't it? <laughs> if it's Coca-Cola, it's real Coca-Cola. Why do they say it then? And you realize, well, to me, it's dead obvious that they had this rival Pepsi-Cola. And if they say Coca-Cola, it's the real thing, they're casting that little bit of doubt that Pepsi-Cola isn't the real thing. Ah, yes, that's good NLP. So sort of transparent, you see. If you, so if you sort of practice with adverts, you know, why are they saying that? And, and, and sort of see what bit, little magical current they're trying to set in motion, what doubt, what, what belief. That's good practice. And then you can start yes. looking at what the politicians are saying. You know, so. I agree. I agree. I actually worked in advertising for a while specifically to learn the magical techniques they were using. And yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the casting of glamours. And these are, I think, just things that are just obvious to magical thinkers, but that are, are not to people who are don't have that, that inclination. And, you know, I, I would say... I would, I, I would say I'm right there with you saying, hey, you know, maybe this is hopeful. Maybe people will learn to swim a little bit. But I think what we've seen instead is either total reactionary terror on, on all sides of the political spectrum, clinging to what, you know, this has to be the truth uh, and violently and, and, you know, and if, if need be in, in many people's cases, unfortunately. But the other thing is you mentioned you know, very bravely that you could be having confirmation bias reading The Economist, which is something that I'm sure most readers of The Economist would not agree with you on. They would say, well, no, this is definitely the truth. But the flip side of that is that when people first have, when people start to get the doubt that you're talking about of, you know, well, maybe The Economist is either I'm, you know, reading things for my own confirmation bias, or even this is perhaps propaganda and is, you know, even the supposedly objective stuff is said for a reason perhaps to demoralize uh, demoralize in some way uh, the Russian army or to, to moralize the people on the, on the Western side of the conflict to inculcate the belief that they're winning. But once you, once most people get that feeling of, Oh, I'm perhaps what I'm reading in, in what I'm told is true is not true. Then they, they flee to conspiracy thinking, which is a much worse version of, of confirmation bias because now they've thrown out the idea that they kind of rush headfirst into the idea that, well, if this is not true, then anything that, anything that is with me in the opinion that the, that the prevailing narrative is not true must be the truth in that binary thinking way that you're talking about. And then they just get, and then without, without a magical viewpoint on that stuff which is just oh well this is interesting let's see what thinking this way feels like but rushing head first into into that looking for the truth i think that's really where where we've been at because of the internet for a long time and just people are i think as i mentioned before just deciding what they want the truth to be and then and then clumping up into big groups uh, to to shout who see who can shout loudest there's a another aspect of that do you see the people hmm. um people come as you say from a sort of dualistic um true or false perspective so if i describe that um the way i've described you some people say oh, i see yes as a magician then you don't believe anything other people are saying you know um now it isn't uh that's just a part of the way along the journey um in my years of magical thinking I suggest that uh, magical thinking gives you a games layer, which is above the truth layer. 
you see the sort of platonic cave metaphor you know that we're in this cave and we're looking at shadows on the wall of the cave and if we can turn around to see the light and the things that are casting those shadows then um we won't be deceived because we'll see what the truth is and i said yeah it's a great powerful idea but the trouble is different people have different truths um if i uh the christian will say well this world is actually an illusion you know god there's another world of 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 a spiritual world which is the truth and we yes we're just looking at those figures on the cave and all that you know and are we're being deceived by the devil and the scientists say something very similar they say ah yes yes you may think you've seen magical things and all that but it's your brain is tricking you into seeing these things you know because the truth is this material world that you can test and so on and so forth and i said that's great but there are quite a few different truths um that these people will tell you you know there's the buddhist truth the hindu truth and so on and so forth um the scientific truth and so the magician really has got another layer beyond that truth layer and i called it the games layer because it's a game because uh particularly chaos magicians you might say oh i saw you using the tarot so you think that is the model of the universe and that's the universe um and someone else was using the yi king so they think we're living in a binary universe or something and actually the chaos magician he would use the tarot one day he would use the yi king another day he would use the pagan gods one day he would use um something weird like a marvel comic gods or something the other day um it's like instead of this belief that ah i have found the truth behind reality it's um which is the truth which is working best for me today and this is one of the chaos magic exercises isn't it you know become a fundamentalist mentalist christian for a day become a, a muslim for a day become whatever for a day and so um when uh, a politician say like trump presents you with his vision of making america great uh as a as a magician you can take that with a big pinch of salt and you say why is he saying that um now actually he's inviting you to play a game and you could say if you happen to be living in a very um you know rust belt town you know motown was making a fortune out of making cars and is now um half the shops are boarded up and this that and the other you might find trump's ideas rather appealing you know um and it might be quite good for that town so he's offering a game which you might decide to go along with now the difference is between you and the average trump supporter is you realize that you've admitted because if it isn't working out if america isn't becoming great it's if actually becoming fractured this at the other it's losing its reputation in the world you could say oh well that game hasn't worked for me i'm going to try another one um 
But the trouble is the person who's chosen Trump because they've made up their mind, he is right, he's true, and they're clinging on to that. If it doesn't work, if America isn't becoming great, it can only mean that someone else is sabotaging it. You know, ah, who is the enemy that's causing this, everything to go wrong? Um, you've made a commitment, means you've taken one side in a war rather than one side in a game, which um, you know, is just one of several games you could play. And, and I think that that is the sort of the next step in magical thinking, to realize that it is you as an individual who is going to decide whether you're going to try these games. And because you're doing it in that spirit, you're not trapped in them. You really are and you could even say you're like a scientist trying it out under laboratory conditions, the laboratory of your own soul. You know, how well does this work for me? And very often you'll find that what the politician is trying to sell you or the product the marketers are trying to sell you was tasty for a very short time, but you move, you grow out of it. You realize that, no, that's not the real thing. And you can go on looking. Um, yeah, I love it. I think that's so that's so clearly put. Yeah, that's that's much more clear than I could have put it because you're much better at not using jargon than I am. I used to say I the phrase I used to use was multivalent truth, the idea that there can be many truths operating at the same time, but just saying that it's different games is so much better. And I think it's it's a better metaphor than stories also because stories, the idea that you could go from one story of the world to the other doesn't imply interactivity. It's the idea that which I suppose it's not for most people, but I love that. And I think that that also kind of points to what the true danger of magic is, which is that you forget that everyone else is not, does not have that perspective necessarily. And they really are kind of stuck in these, in these reality tunnels. Oh yeah. Hey, it's funny that about jargon. Cause as soon as you said, what was it? Multivariant. Multivalent truth. Multivalent truth. I thought, Oh, I love that. <laughs> Try and remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably won't. I'll be too embarrassed to use it. But it, you know, yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> Sometimes I hear these jargons. Thought, oh, that's a good one. You know? Yeah, yeah. But then you then I don't quite bring myself to use them. Well, yeah, that, well, I actually haven't used it that much. But I, uh, but just saying that different things are games are using. You know, one of the interesting things I found about magical writing, looking back, is that it always uses whatever the current technological metaphors are. So for instance, you know, all the writing and the, the new thought writing in the twenties and, and things like that, they talked about radio, the, the radio, the sense radio of your mind. And then quantum physics came along and now it's kind of, now it's kind of internet metaphors. And uh, I think that although the internet is a, a great metaphor, one of the things that Austin Spare said, I think obliquely, of course you can always misunderstand whatever he said is that, <laughs> one thing that I think he that I think I got from what he said was that humanity is always essentially losing power by externalizing metaphors for its own nature. So that in a, and and which I'm not sure that I agree with, but he basically said that all of our technology simply represents internal faculties that we've given up by by you know, excreting outside of ourselves to the, the, the culture that we live in, in the form of, of, of technology. But actually, that's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, it's suggestive to me because I think of say, um, the internet, uh, 
Yeah, um, I, I can give a sort of closer example, and I can give one that has occurred to me in, in recent weeks. Um, you see, it connects people up around the world. Uh, so we go to the internet to make those connections. Now, does it mean that um, 50 years ago, people around the world weren't connected? Well, actually, they were. So we, got, we go to the internet to connect to the world. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, yeah, 50 years ago, was the world completely disconnected? No, there was still a sense of humanity, you know, other people. And how was it transmitted? Well, sort of in culture and a, a, a feeling in oneself that was one is part of this bigger thing. And it's almost as though... Uh, now, I had another experience of that uh, in recent years um, in meditating. I do this sort of oftenness of contemplative meditation where I sit and just quiet my mind. And I found I was constantly thinking up new things for videos. You know? And I got this interesting relationship with my mind because... Uh, some people say, oh, God, I must stop that, I must stop that, I must calm my mind. And my mind is wanting to do something, like keep making you think of another video. I treat it with respect, and I say, look, is, um, I'm trying to calm my mind, so, you know, go away and come back later. And if it doesn't, I say, look, you really want me to do this, don't you? You're trying to prompt me. And... I thought, why is it that I'm um, doing this more now? And I realized that something which is missing from my life is waiting. And years ago, I said to Joel Barocco, and he remembered it, is I said to him, waiting is a gift of time. You know, you're stuck at a traffic light, which is in a car, and you're very frustrated because for a moment, you're just having to wait. And you're banging the steering wheel and think, oh, get on, get on, get on. Um, and I think what I was saying to him was that actually that means you've got about a minute where you could just meditate, just be there, just, you know, um, open your mind to the experience. And you see, that, um, before having cell phones – room they put out magazines for you to read um if they don't put out magazines you just as uh, sit there and wait but now what you do is you take out your cell phone and start messaging things like that so there's a whole factor of life which has gone which is what do you do when you're sitting in a bus stop and the bus isn't coming along um now in the past you could read the adverts of the bus stop but really, you would sit there and think. Now, a cell phone has taken that away from us because it's so instinctive. The moment you're stuck waiting for something to happen, you take it out and start doing things. So technology has replaced something which is quite fundamental in human life. You used to think about life and things. You used to reflect. Now, instead of reflecting, you receive material from cell phone. You know, um, a natural internal function which we've been with us for centuries um, is almost uh, 
because there's always something else you could be doing at that moment. Is that, um, yes. Yeah. Well, I think we've also lost quite a lot of other things. Uh, Certainly, you know, now that we live in a, a world where anything we want can just be brought to us by clicking something, then obviously a lot is there. A lot of the nuances of human communication, it goes without saying, are, are lost. I feel that podcasts are actually the, the only counterbalance to that because they bring, it's the use of the internet to actually bring people together for long form conversation, which actually people didn't really do uh, very much. They were always too busy rushing around and having, which obviously people still are, but people didn't really sit down to have long conversations before the internet that didn't happen on TV. It didn't really happen on radio, even not, not in the same way in the same unstructured way where is with even with TV and radio, it was just, you know, sound bites that you had to condense into three minutes or maybe, maybe half an hour if you're lucky with commercial breaks. Uh, and, and so that, that was my, my, Magical in the other sense of whether my magical memory of um, occult groups in the 80s was the time we spent sitting around in small groups talking, uh, really discussing the world. Very often it, it meant going to a fantastic tea house or something, <laughs> you know, like, like we would go down to have a day at um, uh, West Kennet Longbarrow, um, and then we would go to the wonderful tea shop in in um, malmesbury <laughs> to um, to to chat and everything but it was a very very uh intimate and sharing experience doing those things together and um yeah i really miss that and actually this like this conversation we're having is the sort of thing we might talk about and, and it's very valuable it's great for me here i am down in cape town to be able to talk about these things with you because you have a whole different sort of knowledge of, of what's going on because of your connections and the people you um, you're with or deal with. Uh, and it's, it's, it's great. It's valuable. That's definitely my, my memory of being in groups as well. And I also really miss that. And one of the things that I realized when I stopped being so active in, in groups is and I think I've, it's only become more and more clear to me over time is it's not, not just that it's almost like that type of experience of just that unstructured time sitting around and talking about the universe is itself an occult experience because people don't have a chance to do it outside of that. But the other thing that groups are great for is talking about books. Like people just don't even reading seems to be an occult thing now. Like people that are not necessarily literate and certainly not literate in 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 that type of information and so just the idea of sitting around with people kind of talking about you know comparing notes from books that you've read and talking about books at length that is a i mean even just you know you did a video recently about occult publishing and how i thought that was really really interesting how it had basically venture capitalists left it in the 70s for technology which is maybe what's really driving a lot of this but even the idea of reading and talking to people about shared knowledge from books is just a is for most people just a a cult experience I, i had an interesting experience maybe five years ago in glendale in los angeles going to a science fiction bookstore 
where it was all almost all and almost all the books were from the 60s and 70s because it kind of started to peter out after that and just kind of being in these i was in a writer's group with the the writer dennis etchison uh famous short uh you know within that world well-known horror short story writer and i just remember having this experience of looking around it at you know the seven maybe ten people in this bookshop and nobody was coming in and all the books were kind of from another time period and i realized like this is a gnostic world this is like an occulted world now just reading reading science fiction or fantasy literature with other people it's obviously kind of been dropped by the culture and now it's just movies and video games and things like that and just realizing i just felt like i just had this feeling like i felt like i was suddenly part of some kind of persecuted christian sect in the first century or something like that or we were meeting in the catacombs so that we didn't get eaten by lions and it was just like this profoundly sad realization too just that it's happened so quickly within my lifetime there's something which um i'm very much aware of in britain um, and that is the the move to ebooks and reading them on Kindle and on things means that the paper book takes on a new significance. People say, "I want the feel of it in my hands," and you get what um, they call talismanic publishing, where and people like Jake Stratton Kent um, and uh, Stephen Skinner. Um, you republish something like um, the say say some of the works of John D, and you do a lot of research into it, and you add um, a preface or a foreword and some footnotes, which sort of add value to it. You know, um, so there's the original. You got it there, but you've got this added value of um, some expert thing. And the thing isn't just sort of made into a PDF or, or um, a Kindle book, they, they will bind it um, hand-bound with a half-bound leather cover, um, you know, with a, a talismanic symbol on the front. And the book becomes an object, a talismanic object, which has value in itself. So you're reading this, you're absorbing this while holding an object that really has been made as a talisman. Um, it's special, it's expensive, um, it's handmade in many respects. Uh, now, th- th- that's b- quite a big thing in England that um, people be doing these yes. talismanic books. Yes. Um, I think there's really something to that. I, I think it, 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 I mean, it's obviously uh, become a speculator market. And, but beyond that, I mean, that's why I wanted my John D book to be hardback, why that was so important, because it just, it, it's almost like it brings it in, it brings it fully into manifestation. And the more solid it is, the more manifested it is. And that you just don't get that with Kindles, you know, like in theory, it's the same information, but it hasn't been birthed into the world really. And I think there's also something about physical books where just, just by buying it, you own it. And now you feel that you own the information, even if you haven't read it. So particularly a very heavily illustrated book like yours, mm. you know, you want to be able to flip through illustrations and they catch your eye uh, rather than going flip, 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 flip on the pages of a Kindle, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's also in your life. It's in your house. It doesn't go away when you click out. So it's like, even if you don't 
read it, it's there and you feel that it's part of your kind of energetic field, if you will. Yeah. And I noticed that, um, you know, in, in Zoom talks, um, people, until they got self-conscious about it, they had to have the right books on shelves behind their heads <laughs> while they're talking. You know? <laughs> yes. Like lawyer commercials. Yeah. I definitely I used strained to trying to read what, what the books are. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very funny. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. I want to have you back on in soon, maybe in a, in a couple of months, even. I think we had a little bit of connection, uh, a little bit of connection um, uh, dropout, which we're going to work on here. But but uh, I would like I, I would like to perhaps regularly have you on the podcast because I, I just enjoy talking with you so much. Mm. Well, it's been great for me. I tell you, yeah. I'm very pleased to speak to you direct. Um, rather than just emails and things. Oh, me too. Yeah, they're really. It's really important uh, just to have that. And and I think just to your point earlier, what you were saying of of feeling that that missing that experience of talking with people in in groups or you know you said tea shops things like that. Um, yeah, I mean that's something uh, uh, that I miss. I miss being in groups. I miss even you know even you know talking to Joel Barocco as crusty as as he, <laughs> and cranky as he can be. You know when I met him in per you know he was he was always so abrasive with me online. And then when I met him in person, he was just really nice. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know as soon as people get behind a keyboard they they can suddenly they become something that they're not but he's joel by the way is is i have i should talk to him at some point just because we've had such a like a weird abusive relationship but but uh he he was really a pioneer in trolling i have to say like he was kind of the original troll in the 80s with his zines attacking people he was really ahead of his time on that Mm, yes, the chaos. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I, I got off fairly lightly from him because um, I think we had we had, we sort of uh, we had a certain soul spirit to us, linking us. That um, yeah, uh, I think he really liked my satirical column, um, Satanist Diary. You know that I did, which uh, I, I, I've eventually um, published. You know, as a as a collected works. Um, called the Hellgate Chronicles. And I think that he was very delighted to discover that the person who wrote the Hellgate Chronicles or the, you know, the Satan's Diary was the same person who wrote articles which he liked. You know, the That's great. Is there anything that, I, I know that you just, re, I think you just republished that, right? So is there anything people should know about of projects that you have out right now that you have upcoming and also where to find you online? I'm guessing probably your YouTube channel is the best, the best spot. The YouTube channel is best. Yes. I, I have got a website, but um, uh, I keep meaning to find out how to put things onto the website. You know, that uh, for years it's been static. Um, one project is that um, that's sort of simmering. Uh, Mog Morgan of um, uh, you know, Oxford, Mandrake of Oxford, said he would like to do a collected essays of mine. You know, I, I did what I um, blast away to Megabucks. I did what I did in my holidays. And I've actually written quite a lot of essays since then, which have gone out to various magazines and things like that. And so um, I'm beginning to sort of uh, go back to old computers and finding those. Mm. Um, uh, he happily will be prepared to put them together 
into a proper published book. Um, so that's a sort of a, a project. It'd be nice to say for this year. I'm not sure if I'm that efficient. <laughs> yeah, publishing is not not speedy. That's great, though. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if people really need websites anymore. By the way, I think that YouTube is 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 definitely where it's at. Uh, YouTube and podcasts. So, so, but people should definitely check. I quite yours like out. the brochure brochureware aspect of a website. You know, <laughs> I hear of a company and I want to look and flip through its products and things like. That. Yes, yes. I still use it. I, I'm in that generation. Yeah. Mm. So am I, and and uh, in terms of of early of websites, and and that's basically what my career has been is you know writing on the web. So, but uh, I I do I do notice that the the much younger generation is very much YouTube first and 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 social media first. So I, I think that everyone should check out your channel. It's it's awesome. Mm. Mm. Oh yeah, oh, well that's great. As I realized that I've got to a hundred shows on it, which is amazing. That's great. Yeah, and you just started. You just started adding new. I think you were kind of taking a break for a while, but you just started adding new videos again. So, see, for years I've been a, a, a hack writer, a ghost writer for industry. You know, churning out stuff and living in terror if I haven't got work. Um, living in terror if I'm overworked. Now, the joy of just doing a video when I feel moved to do it. And not feeling I have to churn something out at regular intervals, you know, and, and to demand is yeah. wonderful. Um, yes, it does get stressful when you feel that you have that pressure and you have to meet people's expectations, and especially with comments and things like that. And, and yeah, so suddenly it's not really yours anymore. So yeah, I get that. Well, thank you very much for being on, and uh, I definitely hope to have you again on soon if you're game. Yeah, yes, been great. fun in that conversation meet us at magic.me m-a-g-i-c-k dot m-e my school for magic meditation and mysticism where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self i will see you in class and until next time hang in there